Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The first snow of the season for the town of Sycamore, Illinois, fell on December 3rd. It was 1957, and though it was already dark, many parents let their kids go play outside and enjoy the flurries. Seven-year-old Maria Rodolph and her best friend Kathy Sigmund went to go play after dinner, like they had many nights before. Maria lived at 616 Archie Place, and the girls would often play in a large corner lot where Archie Place met up with nearby Center Cross Street. They made up a game they called Duck the Cars, where they would hide behind a big elm tree at the corner whenever a car drove by. And if either of the girls got hit by the car's headlight beams, they lost. At approximately 6 p.m., Maria's mother Frances left their house to take their older daughter Kay to a nearby music lesson. Frances got home between 10 to 15 minutes later and saw the girls still playing their game. But that would be the last time she saw her daughter, who shortly after had an encounter with a monster. At some point between 6.10 and 7 p.m., a man who called himself Johnny approached the girls. He was wearing a blue, green, and yellow sweater and jeans and at one point took off his winter hat to reveal a head of blonde hair. He smiled and was friendly with the girls and had teeth that were large with a gap in the top. Johnny made a bit of small talk with the girls and offered them a ride, saying he could take them somewhere either by car, bus, or on a piggyback ride. Maria took him up on his offer. He gave her a short piggyback ride around the area they were playing in and said he would give her another ride if she brought him a doll. Maria ran home leaving Kathy and Johnny alone. In some accounts, he offered Kathy a ride then, but she declined. In others, he asked her to go get a doll as well. When Maria got home and started picking through her dolls, her mother told her that because of the snow, she needed to grab a rubber one, not a porcelain one. So she grabbed a rubber baby doll in a red and white skirt. When Maria ran back outside to Kathy and Johnny, Kathy seemed ready to take Johnny up on his offer, but her hands were cold. She asked him what time it was and he told her approximately 7 p.m. She ran home to get her mittens and perhaps a doll as well, and when she got back outside, she found Maria and Johnny were gone. She went to the Rodolph home nearby to see if they'd gone there, and Maria's 11-year-old brother Chuck answered the door. 
He knew the girls frequently played hide-and-seek and asked Kathy if Maria might just be hiding from her. Kathy then ran back out to start yelling for Maria to come out. When that didn't work, she knocked again. Chuck then told his parents what was going on and Francis and Mike Rodolph came out to help search and send Kathy home. Mike brought out a whistle that the family sometimes used to summon whichever child was out playing too late at night. They checked some of Maria's favorite spots but found nothing. Francis went home to call Kathy's mother, Edna, and she became worried when she heard the story about the girls playing with an older man. Francis found her husband still searching and asked if they should call the police, but Mike didn't think there was anything to be worried about. As they kept searching and found no trace of Maria, however, Francis started to think it might be an emergency. She left for the police station some point between 7 and 8 p.m. Slightly different versions of Kathy's story would bring more details later on. She said during their chit-chat, Johnny had offered up the information that he was 24 years old and hadn't yet found a wife. She said he complimented both girls and made sure to tell Maria her doll was lovely as well. The exact timeline in which Maria's abduction took place is something that's still up for debate. The theory would later come forward that when Kathy asked Johnny for the time, perhaps he had lied to confuse her. How much time had elapsed between Maria vanishing and Francis leaving for the police station could have been anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour and 10 minutes, depending on whether Johnny had given Kathy the right time. Police sent out a few squad cars who failed to find the girl, so they started bringing in some more experienced volunteers. The idea that Maria had simply run away was pushed to the side quickly when police made a grim discovery. An early search party traced the footsteps from the elm tree to a nearby field. The tracks led behind an old barn, then stopped where tire tracks began. Whoever had taken Maria had stashed their car nearby. The abduction had been planned. Police called for backup. The houses and yards closest to Maria's were searched again and again, which makes another clue that was found perplexing. At around 10.30 p.m., Maria's teenage sisters Pat and Kay found Maria's doll near a rock in a yard just a few doors down from the Rodolph home, but officers were sure they'd canvassed that spot. Had it been out in the woods or a field, it might have gotten missed, but this was in a yard that was scrutinized over and over again. Many of the townspeople stayed up all night to help. Women took turns bringing coffee and an assortment of jugs to the police station to help everyone power through the night. Some of the search parties were essentially vigilante groups of armed or drunk, sometimes both, men who had not slept enough and felt it was up to them to mete out justice. Various groups and mobs started knocking on doors and demanding to be let in, but despite the tension, as the sun rose the next day, police brought in planes to fly over the town and search from the air. Local men started combing the woods and walking along streams and railroad tracks. Though the FBI could not formally become part of the case until 24 hours had elapsed, an agent showed up that morning and local papers implied he was ready to start helping early, though he wouldn't officially be on until 7pm. Police were quick to say they believed the abduction had been done by someone local, and they said they wouldn't be surprised if the culprit lived near Center Cross and Archie Place. Privately, they wondered if the person who'd kidnapped Maria had left the doll out during the search to taunt them. Police made a public appeal to whoever had left the doll to come forward with information, playing the angle in the papers that perhaps someone had simply found it on their property and been worried about mob justice with the way the search went those first few days. 
A few odds and ends were uncovered early in the search. Someone found bloody towels in a bag, and someone else found a rabbit's entrails. The strangest find, though, was a collection of well-preserved newspapers about two sisters who'd recently been murdered in Chicago. Their names were Barbara and Patricia Grimes, and they'd been just 15 and 12 when they were killed. The murder had been a year prior, on December 28th of 1956, and Sycamore is only 90 minutes from Chicago. Just before Christmas, police thought there was a chance they'd found Johnny. On December 2nd, Kathy Sigmund was taken to Wisconsin for a lineup and identified one of the men as certainly being Johnny. He was a farm worker in his mid-30s who fit Johnny's description exactly, apart from being a bit older. However, upon further investigation, police discovered the man could not have taken Maria as he was actually in jail on the night in question for check fraud. The next few months passed with all of the usual leads that come up in any disappearance. Psychics called in to talk about their dreams and sex offenders were examined in a steadily widening net. Maria's parents went back and forth between believing she was dead and holding out hope she might somehow be alive. The next major development happened months later. On April 26, 1958, a couple vacationing from Minnesota were looking for places to hunt mushrooms. They were near the town of Woodbine in Joe Davies County and only a little way into the woods when they made a grim discovery. They found a badly decomposed body and quickly went to call the police. There were no other girls Maria's age missing in northern Illinois, so local law enforcement contacted Sycamore right away. Woodbine was only about 90 minutes away. The body was identified quickly using dental records and confirmed the Rodolph family's worst fears. An autopsy failed to give any clues about the killer or even Maria's cause of death as her body had been scavenged by animals and mostly decomposed by the time it was found. Though no clear-cut evidence of sexual assault was presented, she was wearing only her shirt, undershirt, and socks. Her coat, pants, and undergarments were gone. Maria was finally laid to rest a few days later on April 30th. Mourners sang her favorite hymn, and she was buried between two plots that Mike and Francis purchased to be their resting places when they passed. A dozen plainclothes officers watched those in attendance, keeping an eye out for anyone who could match Johnny's description in case he decided to attend. In the Rodolph house, Maria did not have her own room, but there was a corner in the living room where she kept her toys. After she vanished, they kept her unopened Christmas presents there, not wanting to turn the room she'd shared with Chuck into a shrine. After her funeral, they finally started putting her things away. When the case had still been hot in the news those first few weeks, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover got involved, and as a result, President Eisenhower did as well. It was a passive involvement with occasional comments passed down from a secretary here or assistant there, but it helped spur the media attention to the case. But with Maria's body being found in Illinois, the FBI could no longer be involved as it was apparent that she had not crossed state lines. The months turned into years, which turned into decades, and after 50 years no one had forgotten about Maria, but they moved on. Many certainly thought that answers to her murder might never be found in this life.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Some who'd followed the case did manage to find closure in 1997, though. A local Sycamore detective named Patrick Soler had been investigating the case on the back burner, but with passion whenever new leads came up. In 1997, Solar found possible evidence to connect Maria's murder with a child killer by the name of William Henry Redmond. William traveled the country frequently as a carnival worker and had alluded to killing at least a few more girls that law enforcement were never able to pin on him. However, he died in 1992, so any conclusive evidence would likely never be found. Solar pitched his idea to Maria's siblings, who received the theory with mixed results. He also pitched his theory to the media, who took his story, embellished it, and ran articles claiming the case had finally been solved. Solar would later say he was embarrassed about the media's spin on his theory. The story had given Kathy Sigmund some measure of closure, but she didn't realize that it wasn't conclusive. The first year or so after Maria's disappearance, she'd been pulled out of school constantly to look at lineups and spent a lot of time being afraid that Johnny would come back for her. Plus, the police had drilled into her head that she was the only person who could identify Johnny. So even as she grew up, she found herself always looking for his face in crowds. She, at least, was glad it was over. By the late 90s, Maria's siblings, Pat, Kay, and Chuck, had all grown up and had children of their own. Her parents, Francis and Mike, had divorced since Maria's disappearance. Mike passed away in 1999 and Francis in 2007, still without definitive answers. It would be five more years after both of Maria's parents passed away that her family would finally see their day in court. In 2011, police told the media the shocking news that they'd finally made an arrest. A man named Jack McCullough from Seattle was being extradited to Illinois to be put on trial. But who was Jack McCullough? To get into the intricacies of how his family intertwined with the community of Sycamore and the Rodolph family, it's perhaps easiest to start at the beginning. Jack McCullough was not the name that this man had been born with. In fact, as a kid, he went by Johnny. Jack had originally been John Samuel Cherry. He was born near the start of World War II in Belfast in 1939. His father was killed soon after, and his mother, Eileen McCullough, fell in love with an American soldier named Ralph Tessier years later. After the war, she came to America, and by then, Johnny was seven and had a new baby sister, Kathy, who was born in 1945. Eileen and Ralph went on to have five more children, Jean in 1947, followed by Bob, then Janet, Mary, and Nancy. Nancy was born disabled and sent to a care home when she was young, which is why she never really talked to the media later on. John took his stepfather's name and stopped going by Johnny at around 13 as he wanted to sound more grown up. John would always recall his childhood fondly, remembering Sycamore as an idyllic place where Maria's disappearance had been the only serious crime the town had ever known. The night Maria vanished, the Tessiers didn't even know where their house key was because they never locked the doors. It was a small town and the Tessiers lived two blocks from the Rodolphs over on Center Cross Street. 
Their family had been among the many to send the Rudolphs a letter offering prayers and condolences when Maria's body was found. Interestingly enough, John Tessier's life had also been somewhat intertwined with Kathy Sigmund's as well. Shortly after coming to the United States, little Johnny was hit by a cab. He spent over a week in a coma and his parents noted some behavioral changes after the ordeal. It would later come out that the man who had hit him had been Kathy's father. Some had put forward the theory that if Johnny had been the one to kidnap Maria, he'd likely been originally going for Kathy as some kind of convoluted revenge plot. But that theory was never seriously considered by law enforcement. While John recalled a mostly happy childhood and said he got along with everyone, others have disagreed. Some people later came forward and said that they always knew John was a bit of an oddball. One witness claimed that John would sit near the front window of his living room in his underwear and stare down anyone who walked by. Someone else recalled an incident shortly after Maria vanished where John poorly disguised himself as a reporter and started asking questions about her. Of course, John denies both of these claims. Much of what we know about the Tessier family household growing up comes from Jean, who was eight years younger than Johnny. Unfortunately, a lot of that knowledge comes from Jean's memoir and extensive court testimony about the childhood sexual abuse she suffered growing up. When Jean was still a toddler, Ralph would touch her inappropriately. When she was six, the abuse escalated to rape. The abuse had escalated because she'd been wearing a dress with no underwear and her father decided she was looking for sex or trying to seduce him. Of course. None of her other sisters have come forward to claim sexual abuse, but none of them have come forward to defend their late father, either. Jean says her brother Johnny would abuse her throughout her childhood as well, the worst of which Jean would eventually testify about in court. In a story with several differing accounts, perhaps it's easy to skip ahead to 2012 when Jean and John, now Jack, found themselves in court. During the investigation into Maria Rodolph's murder, Jean ended up confiding in law enforcement about the sexual abuse she'd suffered at the hands of her father and brother, recounting an especially horrible event when she was 14 and John had raped her before offering her to his housemates. State's attorney Clay Campbell, who was working with the prosecution, tried to talk Jean into holding a separate trial first to charge John with rape, as that would make the murder trial much easier. He assured her that it would be her choice and he would not pursue that angle unless she wanted to. But when Jean refused, saying she didn't think the case would hold up in court, Campbell told her they were moving forward with it anyway. Jean had been hesitant for a variety of reasons. The crime had happened in 1962, but she didn't know what day. She also didn't know the names of the other men who'd raped her and there was no evidence. Despite that, Jean told her story in court in as much detail as she could remember. And to provide evidence of a pattern of attraction to young girls, the state brought in another girl who'd been a victim of John. John had had a variety of careers throughout his life. He tried unsuccessfully to be a photographer, worked odd jobs, and for a time after he came back from serving in Vietnam, he'd been a police officer. It was during that time that he allegedly took advantage of another teenage girl. Michelle Weinman had been a 15-year-old runaway who'd ended up staying with John when she felt unsafe at home. She'd end up there because he was a police officer and deemed someone safe to watch over her. At first, John seemed to be trying to be a father figure to her, but the longer she stayed with him, the more it seemed he was courting her. 
Things escalated one night when he approached her while she was sleeping and started performing oral sex on her. He tried to get her to come to bed with him, but she refused and he left her alone. She left the next day and went to the police, and he was eventually fired. John claims that Michelle asked him to touch her sexually and that he began to initiate sex with her, but stopped. Despite Michelle and Jean's testimony, the case fell through for all the reasons Jean thought it would, and John was found not guilty. John denies any of that ever happened, but during an FBI interrogation in 1958, he did admit to having some kind of sexual play with at least one sister, but said the incident was when they were children. Since John is eight years older than Jean, whatever happened, happened when John was a teenager and Jean would have been between four and eight years old. In any case, the rape trial concluded and the murder trial began, and with it came the story of just how John had been arrested for the murder of Maria. It turns out it was his own family that turned him in. John had been estranged from his family since around 1980, but Eileen had come down with cancer in 1993, and that Thanksgiving was going to be her and Ralph's 50th wedding anniversary, so they wanted to renew their vows. John attended and brought his kids as they wanted all the grandchildren there. Apparently, at some point during the ceremony, John snuck up behind Jean and grabbed her crotch. Near the end of that year, as Eileen was in the hospital and Janet and Mary were keeping her company, she blurted out some kind of confession. What exactly, she said, Janet and Mary are in disagreement about and their testimonies differed. Mary does agree that her mother said something along the lines of, John did it, but said it was a vague statement. Janet says it was more specific and Eileen mentioned specifically those two little girls. She also says their mother said, quote, you have to tell someone. Mary told Janet not to do anything and to let their mother die in peace, and when Janet reached out to Jean, she agreed. In either December of 1993 or January of 1994, Eileen became comatose. Janet decided she would do the right thing and call the police anyway. A detective came to her apartment, but when he learned Eileen was not likely to wake up before she passed, he told Janet there wasn't much of a chance of anything happening. Eileen died on January 23, 1994. John was told he would not be welcome at the funeral. Jean, at some point during her adulthood, confided in her sisters about the sexual abuse she'd suffered at the hands of John. So that was likely what caused the rift, but John claims he didn't talk to his family because they just drifted apart. Ralph passed away in 2006 and he was barred from attending that funeral as well. Along with Eileen's death comes the story of how John Tessier became Jack McCullough. John started going by Jack when he got a trucking job where two of the drivers were already named John, so his boss told him if he wanted the job, he needed to be Jack. He liked the new name and stuck with it even after he left. Around that same time, he proposed to his girlfriend, but word got back to his ex-wives and one of them sent a nasty letter to his fiancée telling her not to marry him. He decided to change his last name both to honor his mother and to keep some measure of privacy because he didn't talk to his family anymore anyway. Plus, that way his new wife wouldn't be the third Mrs. Tessier and would be the first Mrs. McCullough. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In 2008, a friend encouraged Janet to reach out one more time to the police and tell them her story. She sent a short email telling the police it was the last time she was going to try to bring them the story and found that things had changed. There were fresh faces in the department and they wanted to reopen the case. Investigators had their eyes on John back in 1958 because he lived nearby and fit the description. John had not been home the first time the FBI stopped by, but Ralph and Eileen told them that John had been in Rockford on December 3rd trying to enlist. They said he called home around 7.10 for Ralph to come get him, and the men didn't get home until about 9 p.m. On December 9th, police brought John in. He maintained his innocence and even passed a polygraph test. The version of the story he gave then was that on December 2nd, he'd been in Chicago getting a physical to see if he could enlist in the army. He had tuberculosis when he was three, and his lungs showed a spot that concerned the recruiters, so they said they would take a more in-depth look the next day and gave him a voucher to stay in the city that night. He stayed at the YMCA, and the next day they still weren't sure if they could take him. They said he needed a letter from a family physician, assuring them that the spot was benign. That was around noon, and his train to go back home wasn't leaving until 5.15, so he took in the sights. He wandered the city and ended up at a burlesque show. The train took him to Rockford, and he got out about 6.45 p.m., then wandered around until he found a phone at the post office and made a call at 6.57 p.m. to tell Ralph to come get him. John stopped at a nearby recruiting office as it would save him time if he could just come back to Rockford the next day. He found a few people still working and talked to them. One recruiter brought him inside to speak with someone else and they talked until about 7.30. Both men corroborated his story and also remarked that they hadn't liked John much. Then John went off to a nearby diner to wait for Ralph. He had a slice of pie and chatted up the waitress, then Ralph got him some time after that. And by the time they got home, the search for Maria had begun. The next day, John took a train back to the recruiter's office and spoke with a staff member named John Oswald. When speaking with police soon after, Oswald recalled numerous things he found to be odd about the encounter. John went out of his way to bring up Maria's abduction and joked about how it was a good thing he was at the recruitment center the night before. Oswald also noted a small cut on John's lip, but it could have just been from shaving. John also went out of his way to show Oswald a bizarre diary he kept with the names and measurements of various teenage girls he knew. Perhaps the most concerning aspect of the conversation happened by accident. Oswald got a call from his landlady who happened to have the surname of Grimes. After the call, John asked Oswald if she was related to the Grimes sisters who had been killed in Chicago the previous year. Oswald said he didn't know, and unprompted, John began to tell him about the case in great detail. Interestingly, that's the same case where a collection of newspapers about the case was found hidden in Sycamore during the search for Maria. Due to his extensive alibi, with numerous witnesses backing him up, police crossed John off their list. And because Kathy was already looking at so many lineups, they didn't add his photo to the pile. 
They didn't have Kathy look at John's photo until 2011, and though she did pick him out, it was decades later. When police realized John may have done it, they started to wonder if maybe the original timeline for the abduction had been wrong. If Maria had been kidnapped closer to six, John could have theoretically driven his car back to Rockford in time to make the call. He was unaccounted for from noon until seven that day, so if the abduction had been earlier and he made the call on the outskirts of Rockford, not the downtown post office, he might have done it. He'd also really gone out of his way to be memorable to the recruiters that night, even telling one man he'd tried to join the army before but had been rejected for being unstable. Perhaps he thought that was appropriate small talk because he was a bit unstable. Or perhaps he was going out of his way to be remembered at the recruitment center should anyone question his whereabouts. I do have to question this theory though, because it relies on John having kidnapped Maria and then driven himself back to Rockford. If that was the case, his car would have been left there when he was picked up by Ralph. How did he get his car back? Or were they suggesting that John's parents were lying about Ralph having picked him up? And it was confirmed that John was in Chicago, so how did he get back to Sycamore in order to kidnap Maria? There are a lot of unanswered questions with this theory. In order to make the theory work, the prosecution moved the timeline up despite initial reports. Francis, along with three neighbors, had initially reported Maria playing outside at about 6.30. But Francis later remembered the music lesson she took K to had been closer to 6. Another witness who was a delivery man substantiated the new timeline, saying he'd seen the girls at 6.05, but not when he returned from his delivery 15 to 20 minutes later. Investigators started questioning John after his 2011 arrest again. They quizzed him about his alibi and pointed out that Ralph had been helping with the search early that night and couldn't have picked him up, but he said he'd hitchhiked home. The detectives pointed out that his sisters did not see him come home that night, so he said he snuck in through a window. He changed his story a few times at one point, saying he'd also helped with the search. Despite his changing story or just his shaky memory, it had been over 50 years after all, John did have quite a bit of evidence in his favor. The changed timeline was tedious at best, and if the timeline didn't hold up, his alibi was rock solid. However, almost all of that historical evidence was barred from discovery. The prosecution had convinced the judge that because the accounts were so old, they weren't reliable. Which is strange because their own evidence was witness accounts from over 50 years ago. With the FBI's evidence from the 50s gone, so too was any evidence of John's alibi. Leading up to the trial, Maria's body was exhumed and a more up-to-date autopsy revealed she'd been stabbed in the throat. Her family held a second funeral when her body was buried again and the town was ready to finally see justice served. The trial began in the fall of 2012. One crucial piece of evidence came from Jan Edwards, who'd been John's girlfriend before he left for the military. She recalled that either on the 3rd or 4th of December they were sitting in a car when he told her he'd been accepted to the military. They had that inevitable talk many high school seniors do and they parted amicably. John gave her a ticket the military had given him to use the next time he had to go to Chicago as he didn't want to lose it. She tucked it in a picture frame behind her favorite photo of the two when they had gone on a date to a nightclub. The picture would later be the one used in the lineup that Kathy chose. 
If John was planning on taking the train back to the recruitment center the next day, it's strange he wouldn't have used the free ticket. If he had driven rather than taken the train, he might have had time to abduct Maria. John's sister Kathy testified that John owned a sweater he loved that was blue, green, and yellow, just like the one Kathy Sigmund described. But after December 3rd, she never saw the sweater again. She also testified that Johnny didn't come home that night. Other testimonies were more ambiguous. A girl who'd grown up in Sycamore named Pam Long testified at the trial that when she was a child, Johnny had given her a piggyback ride. And when her father saw it happen, he seemed extremely worried to see her playing with a boy. Another local said he could have sworn he'd seen someone driving Johnny's car that day, which didn't make sense if he'd been out of town as he didn't let anyone else drive his car. Irene Lau had been one of the officers to question John in 2011, and she testified that he spoke about Maria as if he were talking about someone he'd been in love with. He called her lovely and said she had beautiful eyes. He even compared her to a Barbie doll. On September 14, 2012, John was found guilty of kidnapping and murder and would not be allowed to seek parole until he'd served at least 20 years. At 74, it was essentially a life sentence. During John's trial, his children and extended family spoke in his defense. Despite the conviction, his family was hoping that John might be able to successfully appeal his case. He had children and grandchildren who spoke admirably of him and said they wanted him home. It took years, but starting in late 2015 during a review of his sentence, things seemed promising. The review was expedited by DeKalb County Attorney Richard Schmack, who had been somewhat involved in the original trial. Schmack and a few other investigators reviewed many of the original documents that had been barred from discovery and felt John had a compelling case. John's sister Kathy said during the trial that she'd seen police cars searching for Maria when she got home at about 7 p.m., which would support the new timeline, but other witnesses who were at the same event said it didn't end until 9 p.m. Phone records had also proven that John had indeed been at the post office in downtown Rockford. Meaning, even with the prosecution's new timeline, he would have been cutting it very close to have kidnapped Maria and made it back to call Ralph. Testimony from Kathy Sigmund also proved useful. In 2012, Kathy testified that there was a street light on the corner where the kids played, which was later proven to be untrue and added fuel to the argument that the eyewitness accounts that had condemned John were unreliable. With new, old, and re-examined evidence, the appeal was very convincing. The bulk of the evidence was simply in the old FBI case files, though. John was released on bond on April 15, 2016, and the charges were formally dismissed a week later. Kathy has since passed, but Pat and Chuck have openly told the media they still believe their brother is guilty. There's no doubt that John Tessier or Jack McCullough, whatever he's going by, has done some bad things. If we take everything he said as the absolute truth, he's still someone who took advantage of a 15-year-old girl in his care when he was in his 40s. He still had some kind of sexual contact with at least one sister who was much younger than him. Some would argue that even if John's alibi held true and he did not kill Maria, he still deserves to be punished. That might be true, but that's not how the justice system works, and that's the kind of thinking that puts innocent people in jail. That sentiment is also partially what led to John's release. The department that handled the case after his Washington arrest was so hell-bent on getting him behind bars no matter the cost that they bent their own rules. 
They questioned him after he asked for a lawyer and embellished some of their testimony during the 2012 trial, which was later used against them on appeal. The 2012 trial itself is another example of that. The fact that the original FBI files were barred from discovery was unusual and ultimately what led to John going free. Had the case been approached more objectively and had facts been checked more thoroughly, perhaps the truth could have been found during the initial trial. If John was indeed guilty, then law enforcement's bending of their own rules only helped to let a guilty man go free. But if he is innocent, then a great injustice was prevented and the case still needs to be solved. Almost exactly a year after he was released, John was granted a Certificate of Innocence and the case was officially reopened. He went back to his family in Washington with a newfound appreciation for his life. He told the media he wanted to travel more and spend time with his kids and grandkids. At this point, the kidnap and murder of Maria Rodolph is still officially unsolved and a monster is still on the loose. That is, if they're still alive. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.